Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Attendance Bias. I am your host, Brian Weinstein. This week's guest is a name that most Fish Podcast fans will recognize. It's RJB, the CEO and co-founder of Osiris Media. As a podcaster myself, I'm always looking up to the professionals in the industry, and especially in the Fish Podcast world. And you can't really get more professional than Osiris Media. A few months ago, I had Tom Marshall on Attendance Bias to talk about being the face of Osiris Media, also about the Undermine podcast, which was then wrapping up its first season, and Fish's performance of David Bowie from December 29th, 1994 in Providence. Tom was excited to talk about everything, but he was unable to give too many details about Undermine, Osiris's flagship podcast that tells about Fish's history and experience in a sort of nonlinear way. Since season one was just completed at the time, Tom didn't have too much to say yet about season two, but now season two of Undermine is scheduled to air next week on Wednesday. With it coming up, I was really excited to hear more about it, and RJ was more than happy to share what listeners can expect when season two gets underway on September 8th. For today's episode of Attendance Bias, RJ picked 46 Days Into Bug from August 15th, 2015 at Merriweather Post in Columbia, Maryland. Played right before the Magnaball Festival, RJ and I break down how the band was experimenting and discovering different musical avenues throughout the whole summer of 2015 and the influence of Fare Thee Well on that tour. We also talk about how all those musical explorations came to fruition at the end of this tour, especially during this Merryweather Post run, as it was the last stop on the road toward the ultimate summer culmination, Magnaball. So let's join RJB to hear about Season 2 of Undermine, the temporary return of the Helping Friendly podcast, and 46 Days Into Bug at Merriweather Post from August 15th, 2015. Let's meet today's guest. RJ, welcome to Attendance Bias. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks Thanks for having me on. My absolute pleasure. I'm excited to talk about so many things today, including... Your background as a fish fan, including Undermine and Osiris Media, and of course, 46 Days Into Bug from August 15th, 2015 at Merriweather Post, a show that I was at, and I always love talking about those shows and jams from 2015, but we'll get there. Before we do, we are recording this show right before Fish starts their three-night stand at the Gorge. Before anything, how's your summer been? What shows have you seen so far? It's been good. I I went to Nashville for two shows and got to got to see my first shows back um, there. Amazing venue, great city. Um, There's some other stuff going on down there, so that was a good a good week. And then I went to Friday and Sunday of Atlantic City. It's been great, man. You know we're, we've been doing these live recaps after every show and doing. We brought the Helping Friendly podcast back, so I've been doing a lot of talking about and thinking about about fish. So um, it's fun. It's been a lot of fun to get back to it for sure. Well, I wanted to ask you about that, the Helping Friendly podcast, because I thought, well, my impression was that it was kind of absorbed by Undermine once that started, but it's come back. I was surprised, pleasantly surprised to see it, that you guys were going to do recaps basically after, if not every stop on the tour, then every few shows. Did you all decide that the Helping Friendly pod is almost like South Park now. Like you don't have a regular series, but whenever it's appropriate, you kind of make a comeback and record episodes as you see fit. Yeah. <laughs> so what we we weren't going to bring it back. So it did get get folded into Undermine along with Beyond the Pond and Under the Scales. And um, we we were approached by a sponsor, this cannabis company in Colorado, that said, you know, we wanted we want to bring this back and do a, a summer and fall kind of tour recap and integrate it with the brand. And so we said, we said yes to that. And the team now is not just the HF pod team. It's the undermine team. That's kind of helping out with HF pod. So Brian and Dave and, and, and the four HF pod guys and, and Tom too. So it's, um it's sort of now like a sub, you know, it's like a smaller piece of undermine or a more focused piece but no plans to bring it back. We even talked about doing quick hits or coming back with tour recaps. And we were like, you know, at this point with our business where we are, it doesn't make sense to take on another show unless there's some sort of sponsorship or, or, or other incentive for us to kind of bring it back. So now we have that. So it's, it's pretty cool. I've listened to a bunch of them. It sounds like this is going to sound funny, but it sounds like putting on an old college sweatshirt 
it sounds like you just all slipped right back into it. The chemistry is immediately apparent. Uh, the cadence of each of your voices is right back. I used to listen to the Helping Friendly Pod when I was at the gym, and it was just such a great way to not pay attention to what you're doing while, <laughs> yeah. you know, while eating up what you love. And that vibe is immediately apparent right there, just as I've gotten used to a lot of the different shows on Osiris. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. Thanks for being a fan. Um, I, I haven't, I hadn't hosted a podcast in, you know, six months or something and getting back to it. It's fun. It's, it's easy to, to dive back into it, especially with this topic. And, you know, like you said, the team and it, it is like getting back into the groove. Um, but I was, you know, six months went by for the first time in like almost 10 years where I wasn't doing a podcast as a host, but, you know, working on a bunch of them. So it's cool to be back. And, um, we, we have a lot more, a lot more to do with all these shows coming up, you know? Yeah, definitely. And I want to ask you about that with Osiris Media and having so much to do, because a few months ago, I spoke with Tom Marshall about Osiris and about podcasting. He gave a lot of background information of what it was like to transition from hosting under the scales to co-founding a whole media company. And to him, it was a huge leap. And you kind of made the other adjustment. You went from hosting a podcast to being a bit more behind the scenes. Would you be able to speak a bit about what the transition was like between positions of podcasting? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I just, you know, in the podcast industry, I guess, um, which is still a very small and and young industry, um, I had just been a host of a music podcast and I figured out how to edit and and kind of figured out how to market. And um, that's what I brought, you know, but at the same time, I had been running a company for 10 years, a, a communications company based in DC. So I had some experience with small business and, you know, managing people and, and, and all that. And, um, you know, I thought we were at the beginning of podcasting when we started in 2018, but it still kind of feels like the beginning, you know, I mean, things are maturing, but it's changing a lot. It's changing all the time. So it feels like we're learning about a new industry as we're building a company, but, um, I don't know. The transition wasn't, wasn't super hard for me, mostly because like the communications company I worked for, what we did was we helped people tell stories. And that's, you know, one of the main ingredients for what we're doing at Osiris, you know, great people, great stories, um, building a brand. And, and so great I've, music I've, too. great music. Yeah. So, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I was able to kind of build on what I had learned before, but, but definitely I wasn't familiar with fundraising or, um, promoting myself as the face of a company. Um, besides being sort of like, the face of the helping friendly podcast, which was, you know, a minor thing, but people would come up to me at shows and, and talk to me and I, you know, we did video stuff and all that, but, um, yeah, I've learned a lot. I mean, it's the best job I've ever had and wouldn't trade it for anything. It's, um, it's a lot of fun and we're growing, you know, very quickly, which is, you know, has a lot of pros and cons, <laughs> you know, every day is a new challenge and every day feels like a race to like race to the finish. Um, startups are, difficult and time consuming. And, um, you know, there's no, there's no real blueprint for what we're doing. We're just figuring it out as we go, you know, and trying to stay innovative and focus on great stories and good people. So it's and a little later, I want to ask you about that. I wanted to ask you in a bit when we get into undermine, which I'm very excited to talk to you about, about the growing pains that you may have experienced as a business, because I've experienced my own and I'm just one guy who has a microphone and a computer and some yeah. very gracious guests. I can't imagine uh, having a whole media company with several shows under that banner. But let's talk about Undermine first, and we'll get to that uh, behind-the-scenes stuff later. So the last episode of Undermine aired in April of 2021, and you've had some time now to reflect and get some distance from it. Looking back, how do you feel about how season one went? So um, it's interesting because there's like the vision that we had, which is, I think season two is when our vision will kind of come to fruition. Season one was a little bit of like a combination of the three shows, kind of alternating episodes and trying to keep the the thread throughout the season. Um, part of that is we didn't have, we didn't have the time to create what we're creating for season two for season one. So it ended up being a little bit more of like um, an amalgamation of the three shows, whereas season two is going to be it's going to feel like a totally integrated, um, show. So, I mean, I'm glad we started with the eighties, you know, like I, I think it's an era that people are familiar with, but, but also can use a lot more examination. So we were, um, 
we were excited about it when we going into it and we were nervous about what the audiences would say. We had three pretty, pretty good shows, but we knew we had like a bigger story to tell and we could only do that with mostly the bigger team. You know, um, the, as we're building this company, like my vision for Osiris is that we're going to be what, what, what we call, we call ourselves as the leading music storyteller. And I think in that like mature version of the company, we'd be best served by having one awesome fish podcast, you know, having like three or four or five or six. It's sort of like when we're going out to the, to the record labels and to Spotify and Apple and talking to them about what we're doing, having undermine as a, as an anchor kind of show is, is much, it's a much more compelling argument than like we have six fish podcasts and five grateful dead podcasts and a bunch of other stuff. So I don't know. I'm, I'm happy we did it, but, um, we're trying to, you know, establish it as the, like the definitive fish podcast in terms of, in terms of storytelling, you know, not, not the kind of stuff we're doing here, like commentary and discussing shows and discussing music is always going to happen. But in terms of like really laying the groundwork for storytelling, that's what we're trying to do. Well, I'm glad you brought up that idea of storytelling because that was definitely part of my thought about the shift from season one to season two of Undermine. And full disclosure, I haven't heard anything about season two other than the trailer that you've released. And it seems that the theme of season two is the idea of community and the different communities or maybe the overall umbrella community that has developed around and with the band. The first season was kind of similar in that it was almost a patchwork that kind of added up to this big tale of fish in the 80s. Was it difficult for you and the team to switch gears from storytelling mode into a more thematic aspect of fish? Because community can mean anything to anybody when it comes to fish. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's like a it's actually a bigger opportunity for storytelling because we're not bound by like the the chronological, you know, path. So we'll we'll go through some history stuff and um, in specific episodes. But overall, the, the the narrative thread is a little bit easier in season two because I think there is an overarching theme of essentially like the question that we're addressing is like, why why do thousands of people follow this band around the country? You know, and that's like, to me, that's a slightly easier thing to build a story around than like what what was the story of the eighties? It was like fish trying to get to the point where they could really break out of Vermont, you know? So to me, it's actually like a bigger opportunity and slightly easier, but, but we have, we, we learned some lessons from season one that we applied that I think are going to really make season two far, far better than season one. What's one of those lessons? Um, I mean, part of it is like when you're thinking about storytelling, you know, do research, talk to as many people as you can, let the story kind of guide where the show goes and and don't be afraid to take it in directions that, that, you know, the interviewees tell you. So we talked to more than a hundred people, which is pretty amazing. And um, Brian Brinkman, who's one of our executive producers and like manages this whole show, he did an amazing job organizing us and you know, getting all these interviews set up and he did a lot of the interviews, but we had seven or eight people, you know, helping with interviews. So it was a, it was a big team. And we also added our friend Benji Eisen as mm-hmm. our head writer. And he's, you know, he's a, he's a journalist. He knows how to tell a story, but he's also like a deep, deep fish person. So he's hilarious. And he and Tom have a good vibe. So Tom is the narrator with Benji writing a lot of that in terms of like the storytelling through lines and the humor and the overall vibe. It's, um, it's really, really fun. And I think as we grow just in general, we're, we're working with more and more journalists and writers on, on all the shows or even just trailers we put together to pitch to people. You know, it's like if we're going to tell a story, we need professional storytellers. I was sort of like a pseudo professional storyteller in my, my previous job. So I can kind of like get us so far, but bringing people like Benji in just totally changes everything. Well, that's why I'm on this side of the microphone. I want other people to tell the stories. I just want to ask about it. <laughs> right. I'll put the onus right. on ask, the guest. Exactly. I mean, I think in some ways asking good questions is harder, um, but you know, I'm I'm much better at asking questions than telling stories. So that, that's what's cool about building a team. Like we have, you know, 10 people on this team helping to build Undermine and everyone has their own expertise to add. So it, it's amazing how much smoother season two is just in terms of production than, than season one was. 
Well, I'm really looking forward to it. I was a big fan of season one. I was looking forward to it every day when the new episodes would drop, even when you announced that it would be switched to Wednesdays. And that's when I released my episodes. I was like, one more. Oh, I got to listen to another <laughs> podcast now on my Wednesday. I got to double my commute. I hope I get stuck in traffic today. Like I never thought right. I would say that. Right, right. <laughs> and you mentioned, but you just mentioned something about your process, about finding interviewees and chasing down some things that they said and letting the story go where it will. I think a lot of longtime fish fans of a certain age, I'll say, uh, looking at myself in this little chat mirror and looking at you, I yeah. think that a lot of us feel, and maybe don't actually, but feel like we have a pretty solid idea of the band's history from reading whatever we could at the time before the internet and message boards were around that we kind of solidified the band's history. This is what happened in 1987. This is what's important in 1989 and so on. Was there anything that you went into season two that you assumed that you knew about the band that was completely debunked or maybe changed from your production of season two? Like something, some assumption you made that was flipped unexpectedly. Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think, um, part of the difference between the first and second season is that season two is much more of like an emotional journey as opposed to like maybe an analytical journey of like, then they went here and played this show and then this happened. And, you know, we're, we're, we're taking a look at this community from a really like broad perspective. And um, I, I guess the thing that I learned or that there wasn't anything that I, that happened that I was like, you know, I didn't know this perspective from Jeff Holdsworth or something like from season one, but right. um, it kind of reinforces the fact that we see this community through our own personal experience and that of our, the friends and the people we know. Right. And you, when you step back and you talk to hundreds of people and you realize like, not just how multifaceted the community is, but also how many people's lives have been like so affected by this band, you know, emotionally, socially, economically, it's the scale of it is is surprising, and I think um, it's staggering. It was eye opening. There were stories from people that I that I didn't expect to hear. People who had illnesses and people who met their you know significant others on on the tour. You know, just things that like really kind of reinforce the fact that this is such a it's such a strong community, and and not just the people who go to the shows, right? It's it's the whole ecosystem that's been that's grown around it, and. In the first episode of season two, we start we start to take a look at how the internet evolved alongside a fish. And that's just, you know, it's it's stuff that we all sort of know, but hearing people who were there, who were there in the early days talk about it is really fascinating. And um, so I, I think there's going to be like some deep dives and stories that make people either reinforce what they already what they already thought but through an entertaining story or maybe even open their eyes to how much bigger this thing is than maybe we give it credit for you've you've said this already twice maybe three times it's funny to hear when you say i think we all know this or i think everybody knows that the more shows i go to as i get older i'm pretty surprised at how huge a fan base fish has that is so much younger than i am i'm 38 years old so I know I'm probably right in the smack dab middle of the median of a general crowd that goes to a fish show. I don't think I'm in the oldest level. I don't think I'm definitely not in the youngest level. But when I went to several shows during the Baker's Dozen, for example, every night I was here and there with people. It was their first show. Like there's a lot of people who ask very basic questions on the fish.net message boards that I just took for granted that everyone knows it. Yeah, we have another a member of our team, Noah Eckstein, who's who's helped with writing for this season and the last one. And he's young and he's part of this kind of next generation of fans. And I think he's added a lot to to our thinking just in terms of what's the conventional wisdom and what people actually know and, and what we might take for granted as as being, you know, the, the gospel of the fish story. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm excited for people to hear it because I think I think it's going to start some conversations and also give people, you know, older fans like us reinforce a lot of and probably bring up a lot of memories, but also for younger fans kind of tell tell the story that they might not have heard in full, you know? Um, well, well, that's my favorite. I'm a middle school teacher. And that's one of my favorite parts of my job. When you get to tell a student like who, in my case, is 12 or 13 years old, something that 
I assume the rest of the world already knows, but to them, it's brand new. Yeah. I, I let everyone own it themselves, which I think relates back to the main theme of season two community that you said, everyone views it through their own lens. I think fish has done an excellent job avoiding mainstream success so that the audience has ownership over it. Everyone has learned about fish their own way. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's in that, you know, with technology and the way that that proliferated in the rise of fish, you know, it's, it's taken on forms that I don't think any of us could have ever imagined, you know, from Facebook groups to all kinds of other crazy, crazy stuff. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really fun and it'll be, it'll be a different kind of journey for sure. Even if you can't give details, did you and Tom and whoever else was in the room when you came up with Undermine, did you ever have a sense of scale of Undermine as a complete work? Like, do you have an idea of there's going to be this many seasons or this many topics, or is it that you just keep digging until you've undermined everything that there is? (laughs) Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I I will say that we we do know how many seasons we're going to do, and we do know what the final season will be. We we definitely know what that final season looks like. What the seasons in between look like in terms of the order. I mean there's so much to to sort out, but we're not sticking to the linear story obviously. You know, we thought we could go from the 80s to the 90s and and there's a lot to be examined there, but then it then it kind of becomes a little bit stale I think and I think we we started talking about the community idea and then it's like someone says like is there enough to do there for 10 episodes. And then we realized that like, not only is there not enough, but like we have way too much stuff and, you know, any, any topic we've come up with, whether it's, you know, festivals or specific eras or um, other things like there's, there's so much to, to dig through. So to me, like the, the seasons that we scope out have to have a through line, you know, as a story and something that allows us to dig deep and, and get new information, new stories, talk to new people. So I know where I want it to end for sure, but um, there's there's a bunch of stuff in the process for season three. Where can people find Undermine? When can they expect to hear the first episode, et cetera? September 8th, um, it will will be episode one. Um, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts, you can go to OsirisPod.com. Um, where, wherever you listen, check it out. It's going to be fun. I, I will say that like the community part of the challenge with the community was like, how do you actually structure a season? And I'm not going to share it now, but we have a really cool structure for the season that will be told through the lens of kind of a, a, a common fish experience. So it's going to, I think it'll bring people on a journey. That'll be pretty cool. So that starts September 8th. Today's chosen jam is 46 days segueing into bug from August 15th, 2015, the tw- the summer 2015 tour. And to give some context to the listeners, RJ, I'm just going to read a little bit about the summer of 2015 as it relates to fish, a little bit about my personal experience, but I want you to join in and cut me off at any point. If you have anything you want to chime in, add on to the door is wide open for you. So Today's show at Merriweather was played toward the very end of a long 2015 summer tour. Fish played 31 shows in all of 2015. If if you count January uh, in Miami, it's 33 shows. I personally don't. Uh, to me, it's, that's inclusive. 2014, it, yeah. yeah. And But out of 31 shows, 26 of them were during the summer. So it was like summer and New Year's. That's about it. Yeah. Some big debuts during this tour included No Men in No Man's Land, Blaze On, Shade, Mercury, How Many People Are You, Scabbard, which I want to make a comeback. Please come back, Trey. I know you're listening. Bring back Scabbard. Uh, Heavy Rotation, which I don't know. Do you know that song? Yeah, yeah. That's a that's a page song, right? I, I don't know. I'm asking you. I think it is. I think it's a page song. Okay. Um, I th- yeah, I think it's from the last album. And not his, to mention his last one before the, before the current one. And this is a quasi debut. This was also the first time at Walnut Creek that they played Slow Llama was summer 2015. Yeah, that's that's wild because that's a uh, man. That's quite a quite a. I don't know. I guess I wouldn't call it a controversy, but it's something. It's it's like a weird binary choice that I can't make. I saw the that meme of like the sweaty superhero with the two red buttons in front of him that said fast llama, <laughs> slow llama. And 
I don't know which one I would take because every time I hear either one, that's the best one. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. They're both great. It's all yeah. great. That's, that's the, that's the main lesson of fish. It's all great. It's all great. I agree. You know, So we would be remiss not to acknowledge that fare thee well was also in the summer of 2015, not fish. Like it's not a part of fish tour, but in my opinion, they're kind of inseparable because of Trey's preparation and performance of all five fare thee well shows. I think there's a pretty easy line to draw from Trey's prep for fare thee well straight to the band's excellent playing during this summer tour. Were you at any of the fare thee well shows? I wasn't, I wasn't, but I do think there's some, I think there's some analog between this, this tour and the, and the current tour 2021, mostly because of the practice, like in, you know, alive again, the show we just did with Trey, he talked a lot about how much he had been playing during the pandemic. And I think he said that he's been playing more than he has in a really long time. So I feel like there's something there that's really kind of points to the fact that, you know, they're really well rehearsed. They've been playing a lot. They're ready to ready to rock. So there's, there's some analog there. That idea between 2015 and 2021 was mentioned on your most recent helping friendly pod episode that 2021 is analogous to 2015 and that they have a lot of different directions they can go into. They came prepared and ready to go. They're very experimental, some new material that kind of rips all those different avenues wide open. And I've been saying that too, that this has been the best tour since 2015. I'm I'm in love with this summer already, with 2021, even with fingers crossed Tahoe to come. I say that now with the weather warnings. Uh, but yeah. also the gorge and dicks. I mean, there's still a lot of music to come. Yeah, yeah, and it's um, it's exciting. I mean, I, you know, we'll see we'll see where the music goes, but but they're definitely having fun and really pretty connected. And and I think there's there's a lot of great communication happening, um, which is which is almost more important than than how they're individually playing. But they're all playing well too. You know, agreed. So I was at the three Chicago Fairly Well shows. I remember I was very impressed there with how great Trey sounded. But for this discussion for Fish 2015, I remember very distinctly sitting at my desk listening to audience recordings of the first few shows at Bend and hearing Blaze On and No Men in No Man's Land. And I thought, this is great new music. This is fun party music, which a lot of Joy and Fuega or Wingsuit, whatever, it was uh, that was very introspective, whereas mm. I felt like Blazon and No Men in No Man's Land, which were kind of the tent pulse jam songs of that summer, they were they were just there for a good time. It was just good music. So tight, prepared, and rehearsed tray, plus almost an album's worth of new material led to what I consider one of the best tours of 3.0. And people who have listened to this podcast know that in the summer 2015. I was coping with a recent divorce and I spoiled myself in 2015 by going to Chicago. I went by myself to see Fish in Nashville, both shows at The Man, Meriwether Post and Magnaball. And this was the first of two nights at Meriwether. And it was the last tour stop before Magnaball a few days later. So where were you in the summer of 2015 that led you to Meriwether? So I was living in DC and, um, I guess, uh, you know, at that point I've been doing the helping friendly podcast for two years or so. And I probably, I would say that this tour was the, the most I'd been back into the band, um, since, you know, the late nineties and I was understanding and kind of appreciating the music in new ways. I, that was probably the first time that I thought like this band is so much better now than, than they they've ever been just from a musical perspective. And, and, the you know, this particular tour, because of the reasons you mentioned, I think they're, even they were even better, but, um, I, so I was kind of back in, back into it and, um, going to Magna ball and, and went to Meriwether before Magna ball. These were really, you know, being in DC, we would always stay at the Sheraton at, at Meriwether and just hang out for the weekend and, um, have someone stay with our then two-year-old at the time. So it was like, it was just a fun, fun weekend, you know? Um, and, and that's what Meriwether always, always was for me. And have you been seeing them consistently since 2015? Like, did that flip a switch for you? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, you know, I think the podcast had a lot to do with it in in that it was a, it was a way for me to justify going to more shows. You know, 
Yeah, well, the fans will tear you apart if you don't sound yeah. like you know what you're talking about. There's that. And then there's the, you know, back to the community. I mean, I've met, I don't know, dozens, if not hundreds of people, you know, through the podcast who I met on Twitter, mostly who came on the show or or I met, you know, posting about the show or listened who I now see at shows and go to shows with. So um, that definitely you know, there's a, there was a new kind of bigger community to, to be a part of, which is, which is really awesome. I feel similar, you know, doing this, I've met so many people just in the same manner that you described. And I agree. It's, it's become this weird uncanny Valley between in-person and digital community where you feel, you know, these people that you've never met in person before. And then when you do, you have these conversations as if you just caught up over a three hour dinner the night before. Meanwhile, you've never seen each other face to face. It's a weird world that we live in. It's crazy. I remember in Meriwether 2014, which was like the first summer tour after we started our podcast. And it was, you know, meeting people for the first time and hanging out with people for the first time who I'd been communicating with on Twitter. It's just, yeah, it's weird. It's a weird really weird community, but I'm really glad to be part of it. And this sequence of 46 days into bug, this was played toward the beginning of the second set. I liked this night better than the other Meriwether post, just the set list and the antics with NO2 and everything. And they play glide, I think at this show, which is my favorite song. Every, just everything clicked on this night. It was my first time ever at Meriwether post. And this 46 Days in Bug is extremely memorable for a memorable show. Why did you pick this jam of all the shows that you've seen? Why do you have attendance bias toward this? It has a little bit of everything that I love. It has a really great kind of diversity of improv. There's there's a little darkness. There's the kind of blissful major key jams. Um, and then there's this, what reminded me of it again was the the 2021 summer tour um, tendency to kind of drop into a, a perfect song after a long jam. Um, they, they've done it a couple of times this tour. And this was just like one of those things. I mean, you could, you could argue that you could sort of hear it in the, in the 46 days jam a little bit, but I think the, you know, the drop into bug was just, it was just perfect. And to me, there's like, I think that's one of the greatest moments at a fish show because it's like a, it's a cool down moment, but it's also just, you know, with a a song like this, it's just, it it just works perfectly. So at the beginning, it sounds like a usual 46 days. What appealed to me is that Fishman barely uses any symbols for the first two minutes. I know that he normally focuses on the woodblocks at the beginning of 46 days, but when I listened back to this, this is like Velvet Underground first album level of symbol avoidance. Like he barely <laughs> touches them until the first chorus. And even then it's just for emphasis. He doesn't hold on to his hi-hat at all, right? This this is a very powerful opening. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really really high energy and and it, i feel like they i you know you, you never know what they're thinking obviously when they go into a, a song or, or choose a song but coming out with the haley's into 46 days um i feel like this was the the time in the set when it was like let's let's see what we can do here um and it starts from the beginning i mean i, I do think the the beginning part is a little bit different um and and kind of sets up this this jamming that comes next how is it different because I why I heard the same 46 days I always hear. Um, I think that, well, I guess in the first like couple minutes, it's probably pretty similar. But I think, you know, right. once you get okay. to you get to three or four minutes and it's it, it feels like they're um, they're already kind of I mean, Trey particularly is already using effects that that wouldn't come within the chorus or or verses of, of a song like this. And, you know, by five minutes in the song, they're like they're in a different totally different song.
around four minutes or so. I don't have a guitarist's vocabulary. I don't know anything about pedals. I know Wawa pedal. And then I'm out. I'm out. (laughs) Uh, But but I did notice he turns to really good finger tapping around four minutes and 45 seconds. And it's like Iron Maiden type heavy metal guitarists. And there's we're in a psychedelic arena rock god world. And that's when you say that you heard it's different from usual 46 days. My impression is usually like Pete Townsend power chord. Madison Square Garden, right. 46 days. This is a bit more rock, psychedelic, heavy metal, 46 days. Yeah. And using those effects like around, you know, four or five minutes in, like the the tapping you were talking about, I mean, it really kind of starts to build tension and builds builds up to like a sort of mini, you know, rock rock solo in the in the early part of the jam. And I don't know. I think that that at the time that was like a you know, you knew that the jam was about to take off at that point, um, given that we're only a few minutes in. And they, they definitely were just like, it was a departure from the from the typical just blues rock of 46 Days. Yeah, and they get right back to the blues rock part of it at around six minutes. They come back to the chorus, you know, just the 46 days and the coal ran out. And it seems like, okay, now it's going to cool down a little bit. Pages on the organ, it sounds like that's kind of, grounding everything but even page can't help it he's probably the most even keel of all of the four musicians but he starts thundering this boogie woogie piano uh somewhere around six and a half or six minutes and 40 seconds and you know that if page can't hold it together it's busting wide open Yeah, and then Trey comes in and with like some big sort of chords in there that just kind of um, re refocus his attention from like the effects to you know there there's like a little break there when Paige is on the piano and Trey plays a couple of those rock chords and then you know and then they both get into a totally different space and it starts to get really pretty pretty dark and pretty awesome. Yeah, that totally different space is what caught my attention. I've been listening to this sequence almost on repeat since you brought it up. And right around nine minutes, I think it is, it's like a hard left turn. Now we're in a different world. It's like, where's 46 days? 
at yeah. this point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, there's, there's some disagreement about, you know, sort of the length of jams and whether that is evident of anything. Um, this would be like a, a good piece of evidence for an argument about why it's, it's actually better that they, you know, within eight minutes or so, they're in a completely different space. Whereas other times, you know, it takes 15 or 20 minutes to, to get to a space like this, which is also really fun. But, you know, this is, um, to me, that's when they're the most well-practiced and paying attention and listening is when they can like get to these spaces that are so different from the song structure within, you know, eight or nine minutes like that, that doesn't, to me, it doesn't seem easy to do. And, um, they, they seem to do it pretty seamlessly, you know? That, yeah. That was a big discussion point in 2019 in the summer when the phrase micro jam started coming around, coming around and it's, yeah, they finished the song. They're kind of searching for, like you said, just like maybe three or four minutes. And all of a sudden you're at this top of a volcano peak and yeah. then it dives out. It goes back down again. Whereas in 2003, for example, speaking of 46 days at it, right. It went for yeah. something like 35 minutes. Yeah. 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 And I, I have to credit my friend, Jonathan, with bringing this, bringing micro gems to the surface, or at least <laughs> oh, yeah. being, uh, being, being one of the first people to talk about them on the internet. I mean, it's, it's a very real thing, you know, and, and we've actually seen it a lot in this current tour also, you know, you've seen these like 10, 11 minutes jams that are as powerful as, as a, as a much longer jam. While still seeing 20 plus minute jams, that kind of mirror this 46 days, they kind of give you a tour of the multiverse and while still keeping your attention every step of the way, which happens in this 46 days around 12 minutes, which turns into this. I remember at the time this bliss jamming it was called. Yeah. And that was my favorite part of 2015 when it was uplifting major chords where I was the stereotypical fish fan, eyes closed, hands out to the sky in like a Jesus pose, you know, head yeah. looking up. Yeah. And I just wanted it to wash over me more and more. I even wrote in the notes uh, around 13 minutes. I have a bad habit of saying that, quote, this is my favorite type of fish several times in the same yeah. jam. Every time <laughs> they change, this is my favorite kind of fish. And I'm fighting the urge to say it during this jam, considering I love the dark, the dark jam that was only four minutes prior. Like we are pretty far from 46 days. Yeah. I mean, I think this is, um, I mean, I think it's the best, you know, it's the best kind of fish jam, particularly live, you know, there, there is a, there's something to be said for letting that kind of wash over you. Like you said, um, I don't know. I think now 2015 is when that happened. Maybe not every show, but, but almost every show, there were several shows that tour where that, that was the kind of primary way that they were improving. And it does seem like it, became a little bit of, of a crutch or something, you know, or it was just like the easier, easier way to go. Not that it's easy to get there, but, um, you could come to expect it from a long jam, but that doesn't change anything for me. I think it's, I think it's just when you're there and there, you know, who doesn't like celebratory peaks, you know, yeah, that's like, like who doesn't whole... like feeling good. <laughs> I mean, yeah. there are people who love, you know, the dissonant stuff, like the split open and melt from Nashville a few weeks ago where like mm. people, people stop moving because there's no way to really move to the, to the jam. You know, it's just sort of like, everyone's well, that's staring how I felt at the ceiling. The, yeah. It's how I felt during the split open and melt in Atlantic city, especially toward the end. Yeah. It's they are at the edge. And then like a minute later, they had pushed me over the edge where I'm just yeah. kind of staring up 
at the sky. Like, I don't know what to do with this music except just kind of let it happen. Right. Right. And I, I think, you know, the like complaining about a, a blissful celebratory jam is just, it's not going to happen for me because it's, it's one of the reasons I like to go. I, I do. I have this like theory that is probably pretty common that it's kind of the hose analogy. Like there, there are parts of the show where the band is clearly leading the energy, you know, and, and sending it out into the crowd. And then there are times when I think like the crowd is kind of pushing the band in a way. And I think it's a give and take. And in moments like these, especially with Kuroda, the way he's able to anticipate and capitalize on it. It's like, I think it's, those are the best moments live. So I also think you can hear, you can, you can kind of hear bug in this jam. Like if you took a portion of this jam out and put it into like the bug solo, it would sound pretty similar. So I don't know if they were anticipating that or if that was like a coincidence, but it feels like that you can hear that when you listen back to it. I wanted to ask you that because this, this jam is about, or this whole track of 46 days is a little, a little bit more than 16 minutes. It dies down to about half speed. And then it's this perfect piece of music that slowly bleeds into bug. They don't stop. It's not just a direct, you know, a a car crash into bug. It doesn't save it. It just happens naturally. And to me, it sounded like a typical bug in a in the mean, I mean that in a very good way. Bug has, I think, some of Tom's best lyrics. It's a great landing spot for a lot of big jams, which is how I guess I tend to see it. What about this bug stood out to you? Was it just the placement of it, or was there something deeper to it? Yeah, I mean, I started thinking about it after the Hershey show when they played the bug right after Birds of that long Birds of a Feather jam, which was also such a great, great jam. Um yeah, I think like the placement of it is just great. I mean, I think there's like a few songs like this that are great to hear in that in that spot. I mean, Life Boy, Bug. I actually think that, you know, I, I really love more. I, I think there are songs that I think just when they when they play a little bit of a breather after a long jam is just perfect. But this is, you know, the the hearing hearing the song live versus on tape or you know, after the fact is totally different. Like you're the lights are great. There's the, the, na- the, call it's the name of the show you're on right now, man. We are on yeah, attendance exactly. bias. It is real. <laughs> exactly. The solo is great, but there's also just, you know, the interaction with the crowd, you know, people being having their cathartic moment with it doesn't matter. I mean, it's just always like a great moment at a show. And um, I think coming after a long kind of intense jam is uh, the perfect placement for it. So I remember at the time just hearing hearing them start bug and I was like, this is just it's just perfect. So in terms of the version of the song, I'm not sure that this particular version is better or different than than any other one. But just the placement and the way that it worked together with the 46 Days, I think was just amazing. And I don't really love like I don't love 46 Days. It's not one of my favorite songs. So being there at that moment and hearing them take it into a totally different place and then drop into Bug, I just thought it was such a memorable, memorable piece of music. RJB Osiris Media, thanks so much for coming on Attendance Bias to discuss everything, to talk about <laughs> to talk about <laughs> podcasting, to talk about Osiris Media, getting us excited for season two of Undermine, to talk about this version of 46 Days into Bug and 2015, the summer of 2015 in general. We snuck a lot in there in the time that we had. So I want to say thank you for being gracious with your time. I know that you're busy. I want to say good luck to you for the season two of undermine and all the future projects 
with Osiris. Thanks so much for being here oh, and bringing man. this jam to the attention of so many. No, thank you so much. Thanks for saying that. I know I know how hard it is to build a podcast and to build an audience and to keep it going and to do everything you know um, you're doing. So nice work and keep it up. And thanks for thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. And before we end this, just one more time about when Undermine Season 2 is airing, where people can find it. Yeah, Undermine Season 2 will be premiering September 8th, and you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a review, share it, tell us what you think, um, interact with us on social media. And uh, yeah, we appreciate everyone listening and, and following along. All right. Thanks again, RJ. Yeah, thank you, Brian. It was really nice to talk to you, man. At this point, we normally do an attendance bias fact check. But since today's interview was mostly focused on Osiris Media, on RJ, and about Undermine, there really weren't too many miscommunications or facts thrown out there. The only one I really needed to focus on and double-check was our brief discussion about the Paige McConnell song, Heavy Rotation. RJ was correct that Heavy Rotation is off Paige's self-titled album, and it's actually only been played once by Fish on July 22, 2015 at the Les Schwab Amphitheater in Bend, Oregon. Other than that, I think we were pretty tight on our facts and figures this episode. So that's it for today's episode of Attendance Bias with RJB. I'd like to thank RJ for joining me today, Fish.net for everything they do, and Fish.in for the recording used in today's episode. Of course, I have to thank Osiris Media for their hard work and leading the way in the world of professional fish podcasting. If you enjoy Attendance Bias, please support the show by leaving a rating and a review of the show on your favorite podcast app. You can also tell one person about the show, spread the word, and have them give it a listen. Come and find Attendance Bias on social media, particularly on Twitter and on Instagram. Reach out to me and I'll send you a free sticker. Thank you so much again for listening and I'll see you next week on Attendance Bias. Thank you.